You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show. Special episode this week. You've got myself, Clancy Overall, and Effie Bateman here as the hosts and the interviewers. And this week's interviewee is a, uh, a man that was very uh, kind enough to join us. Uh, he's obviously a bit busy right now if you've been reading the news cycle and, and, and seeing what's happening in the news. Thomas Mayo, thank you for joining us. I don't know where to introduce you from. Thomas Mayo from the MUA. Thomas Mayo from the Uluru Dialogue, the Uluru Statement. Thomas Mayo from Darwin. Oh, it's still a bit of everything around yeah. the place, you know, but I I started off as a simple wharfie uh, back when I was 17 years old. Now, I, I kind of want to talk about that. So are you still involved in the union movement as an assistant yeah. secretary? Or? Yeah, I'm the assistant national secretary, just yeah. recently elected. So that's what I'll be doing after all this madness of the yeah. referendum. I'll be going back to advocating for workers, you yeah. know, um, negotiating enterprise agreements, doing, you know, safety and, uh, you know, disputes, all those sorts of things, just helping out. But also, you know, in the tradition of uh, the union movement in this country, continuing to do bits and pieces for social justice. And, um, yeah, that's what we do. So I was reading that you are part of uh, producing the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Can you explain more about how it came to be? Yeah, so the Uluru Statement was made on the 26th of May 2017 and it followed 13 regional dialogues, so covering the entire continent and adjacent islands. They were three days each, those dialogues, and it was a unique opportunity really because we haven't, we've never had that type of process of bringing Indigenous people together from many different backgrounds and experiences and perspectives, region by region, covering the entire continent, and having an informed discussion, looking back at the history of everything that we'd tried before, uh, you know, all of the different statements and petitions that had, you know, that precede the Uluru Statement, Uh, such as the 1930s petition to the king by William Cooper and the Aboriginal leaders of the time. 1963, I'm just giving several examples, was a a petition to the federal parliament by the Yolnu people called the Yakala Bark Petitions, and they were seeking to protect country, their land, because the federal parliament was moving to excise a massive portion of it for a bauxite mine. And they lost that case. They went to the Supreme Court in the Northern Territory and, and they lost. The decision was part of the precursor to the success of Mabo in the 90s. And the 1972 Larrakia petition to the Queen. Uh, we looked at all those moments in history, how they'd all been dismissed and ignored. But also throughout that history, every one of those statements and petitions, they all called for political representation or a voice, you know, just a, an, a, a, a structure um, with which Indigenous people could choose representation, hold that representation to account, to have a, a process of being able to regularly meet and have debate and discussion and work out the priorities that we would go out then in a united way and say, well, these are the solutions and this is the way that we want to be treated, which is, you know, when you really think about it, it's a natural thing hmm. for people to do, right? Workers in our unions, um, councils and business councils, industry associations, we organise uh, structure so a people with a common interest 
can be heard. So we we looked at that history. We also considered that there'd been many voices established before. Uh, we didn't wait. You know, we we take responsibility. Um, there's this great misconception that somehow Indigenous people are different from other human beings and don't love our children enough to take responsibility for ourselves and try and improve our lives. So we we established voices in the 1920s. There was the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association, followed by the Aboriginal Advancement League, the Australian Aborigines League, and then so more th- recently... all these voices are brought in by a, a feel-good government and then cut by a raise a budget in the following government. Is yeah. that what happens? Well, so the earlier ones that I was mentioning just then were established by our own means because we were being ignored, right? Yeah. The, the government, we called for representative. So we organised it ourselves, but they were either completely ignored or the powers that the authorities had were used to intimidate the leaders just to silence that voice yeah. so yeah. they could steal our children yeah. uh, all the way up to you know the 70s. They could decide uh, who we could marry. They could direct us to work without pay. They could exile us from our country and separate us from our families and put curfews on. You know, people across this country might know of boundary streets in their town yeah. or city. Those, yeah. were, the, those yeah. were the boundaries where there was curfews on us. So, so the those boundary voices, street, West End, boundary yeah, street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're there. everywhere, yeah. right? They're everywhere and it's, it's sort of this reminder in living memory is this curfew that was on us. But you see, those powers were used to silence our, our voices before. Mm. And then the 1967 referendum happened. The most successful referenda that's ever been held, over 90% of Australians voted yes to seeing us counted as citizens for the first time in the census, and also to give the federal parliament the power to make special laws about Indigenous people in the race power. So that's still there. Mm. There's this uh, misinformation that 1967 saw race removed from the Constitution and made us all equal. Well, that's false. The race power is still there. It's been used only to make laws about Indigenous people since 67. And see, there was this case... Do you have any examples of that? There is this case in the 1990s. I encourage people to look it up. And it's called the Hindmarsh case. Yeah. And it was Aboriginal people in South Australia trying to protect a sacred site. And, you know, there was this uh, back and forth. And eventually it ended up in the High Court. And Aboriginal people argued that the race power, you know, the power to make special laws about any race should be used to make laws for the benefit of Indigenous people, not to our detriment. Mm. The High Court ruled, the decision was that the race power, so this is still the case today. The race power can be used to make special laws about Indigenous people that are to our detriment, yep. okay? Not necessarily for our benefit. You know, so 67 changed that as well. Uh, but it gave us great confidence and government started to establish voices. Mm-hmm. So here's an important pattern through history. Whitlam established a representative body. Then Fraser came in. He got rid of that one. Mm-hmm. Eventually he established another representative body. Then Hawke got in. He got rid of that one. Eventually he established the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, another representative body. And then Howard came in. He got rid of that one. Yeah. And we haven't had a proper representative body since. And the gap is widening. We always see – this is the other thing we considered when we had these dialogues – that when we do have a representative body, again, a natural thing, right? It's a no-brainer. When people have a voice, we make greater progress. We see better decisions made because we're able to influence those decisions mm-hmm. in a proper way. And when we don't have one, things get worse. So the gap was widening at a rapid pace when we went into those dialogues and we were in a crisis, really. 
and just this year, the gap so these is are, These are the dialogues in Uluru. That the, it was at a crisis point where you basically called – when you say 13 regional dialogues, you mean people from different country or people from different – You know, I mean, were you representing the trade union movement? Who, who was no. representing what? Yeah, I wasn't representing the trade union movement. I was an advocate in my community trying to yep. get better decisions, you know, yep. improve our lives, and that's how I ended up being invited to it. The dialogues were – to describe it, it was 100 participants at each, yep. and that wasn't to exclude anybody. It was to ensure that with a formula applied, there was a cross-section of views and perspectives. Yep. So the idea was if we just had an open invitation, it might be the loudest of our people you know, that are used to being heard, dominating and, and skewing the results. So there had to be space for the quieter advocates, the healers, those yep. types of things. Yeah. So there was a, a range of perspectives, mm. yeah. A range of approaches. Yeah, yeah. Or, or understandings of yeah. how we can achieve things. Yeah, Because yeah. uh, the loudest voices in the room, for example, the loudest voices in the room end up in parliament, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So that's what we get. <laughs> yeah. That's how you get elected as a local member. You're the loudest voice in the room, you make the most noise, and that's usually not the most helpful thing, is it? Yeah, so one part of the formula was to ensure that the people, you know, the, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are doing delivering frontline services for mental health yep. to do work in the health you know, profession, yep. those types of people that are dealing with domestic violence yep. and uh, things like that in our community. So, so it was we needed to ensure that they were part of coming up with this proposal for the next step forward. And what we came up with was this idea of constitutionally enshrining a voice. Because, you know, as I said, post-67, these voices were established and before that, and they've always been silenced. We make better progress when we have a voice. We go backwards when we don't. So the proposition for this referendum to constitutionally enshrine a voice has come from Indigenous people ourselves through that process and it is informed by our history. And as I said, it just it's just common sense yeah. that a people should have a structure to speak coherently rather than politicians choosing what Indigenous person is speaking for black followers yeah. today, you know? Because they always represent their party and their yeah. political aspirations, mm. not the community. Everyone's got a future. Yeah. Everyone except, you know, the people on the ground. The question I have is the argument that would be made, and probably I would say probably the most sensible and moderate argument being made by the you know the Liberal Party's no campaign is there are elected and some would almost argue almost an overrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people elected into parliament when you look at the population of Australia. I mean I'm not sure what the number is now. It it changed rapidly at the last election. It bumped up. Yeah, it changed rapidly. That's a good point. It can change rapidly to bump up and it can change yeah, rapidly right. to go down. Mm-hmm. So the voice is about consistency of Indigenous people yeah. having a voice. Next election, we may have zero yep. okay. in Parliament. Mm. So, you know, there should always be the ability for communities to speak to the solutions that they have and how to improve policies about housing and health and education. But the other thing, it goes to a point I mentioned earlier, which is politicians are politicians, yeah. right? And if they're Labor or Liberal, that's who they represent. Yep. They represent blue, red or green, uh, or even if they're independent, they're representing their own interests and their own political aspirations. Well, yeah, the, the, teal, the teal MPs aren't necessarily beating the drum for you know what's happening in Tennant Creek, are they? Yeah, look, and I think the main point here is this, this really cuts down to the motivation of mm. politicians. They represent electorates that are 
mostly non-Indigenous, yep. right? We're only around 3% of the population spread across over 170 electorates. We're just a, a very tiny minority, electorate by electorate. And so each member of parliament represents an electorate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so Indigenous matters, how to resolve our issues is always a very low priority. Yep. Lastly, of course, as I mentioned earlier, they represent their political party. Yeah. So would you say the reason we need to go to a referendum for a voice is to constitutionally enshrine not only, you know, there's that, there's that as well to this, you know, to this referendum. There is recognising Indigenous people, but there's also the idea of constitutionally enshrining a voice into our constitution because so far any attempt at this has been slashed for either a budget or political point scoring. That's right. It's always been removed. We we are always use like a political football. Yeah. And it's about consistency. And if we were to only legislate this voice, you know, some have argued, why have a referendum? Yeah. Parliament can, you know, legislate a voice anytime. There's an argument, you know, that we should separate out constitutional recognition and just have a vote on that because most Australians support that and separate that from a voice and just legislate the voice. Yeah. Well, I think most Australians agree that people should be listened to when yeah. decisions are made about them. So I think most people would have support the voice. But you see, Indigenous people know from that history that if we only legislate the voice, we're setting it up to fail. And that's yeah. wasteful, you yeah. see. You know, all of these times that governments have established a voice and then the next one takes it away, that's wasteful. Yeah. You know, money is spent on doing that. Hopes are built. And then they're destroyed. Well, how do you uh, feel now with do watching, watching the point scoring? Did you expect this? We worked really hard to convince all sides of politics about this, and we have to a certain extent. We have supporters like uh, Julian Lisa, you know, who actually resigned his position on the front bench of the coalition. He was the shadow minister for Indigenous Affairs and uh, and also the shadow attorney general. So, you know, a, Top a, a huge step. Yeah. You know, a, a huge uh, commitment. Yeah. Andrew G out there in, in Orange. Resigned from yeah. the National Party. Resigned, you know, like as he's not even in there. Just, yeah, yep. because he supports this. Yeah. You know, so we have support across the political spectrum. But sadly, for all of the work that we did on trying to bring the entirety of the coalition along with us, They've chosen to use this as a opportunity to try and take some bark off elbow, you know, using yeah. it as a as a political gamesmanship, basically, which is, I think, it's disgraceful. Bad faith. Is it, it is. It's disgraceful. You know, what we're talking about here, to really cut down to what this is, what we're saying yes or no to, is recognising Indigenous people, which we should have done long ago. As, you know, as said, you know, this is something that all Australians, most Australians would support recognizing indigenous people are here but doing it in a way that gives us an advisory committee mm -hmm. it's just an advisory committee what, and what does the voice look like to you I mean, we did a story on two the other day is there going to be the assorted creams the arnots on the table is there a big tin of nescafe kind of blend 48 <laughs> what does it look like to you i mean that, yeah. i mean that feels like a big part of the problem with where the misinformation thrives is because people can't physically visualize this is this just yeah. a room Full of elders in Parliament House. It's what? just an advisory committee. We've yeah. got all sorts of yeah. representative bodies in yeah. this country. We're a democracy. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. representation, as I mentioned, there, yeah. there's so many. But um, this is what we're voting. Again, I'll go to the reason why I, I really stress this is what we're voting for is because that is yeah. what we're voting for. We're not voting for a model. Yeah. Okay. So have you seen the Constitution? 
Yeah, it's that big. Yeah, it's the size of a passport. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's like this tiny little book, and it doesn't contain all of the mechanics of how we do things. Mm-hmm. You know, as as a country, like, and that's because it just has the the top level things, right? It sets up the institutions like the High Court and the powers that Parliament has, such as the power to make laws for the collection of taxes. Yeah. It doesn't say how much tax. It doesn't say where the tax commissioner is and where the office is. You know, it gives the parliament the power to make laws for the protection of the country, for the defence of the country. It doesn't say how many tanks and how many bases or... So everything's everything's reformable. Yeah, that's right. It gives it flexibility. The the constitution is just what the parliament should do and then we elect the parliament to decide everything else. Even for elections is a good example. It just basically says that there should be elections. It doesn't have how many members of parliament. Say this referendum is successful and then parliament gets to decide what it looks like from there. Is that what you're saying? That's right. And we elect the parliament, so we hold them to account to get that right. And if they don't get it right, then they can change it. Okay. Otherwise, they don't get elected again. Okay. So it's not like... Peter Dutton wins the next election and Warren Mundine and Jacinta are now the voice. Is that like, you know, is there fear of that happening too? Look, that would be not consistent with what the Australian people want. Yeah. And so the Australian people would would then judge a parliament that doesn't establish genuine representation. Okay. So what we're voting on is recognition and that there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. And I'm paraphrasing what the change to the constitution is here, because it's only 92 words. Why don't I start from the top? In recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of Australia, one, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Two, the voice may make representations to the parliament and executive government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And three, the parliament decides all matters relating to the voice, including the composition, powers, functions, and procedures. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what we're saying yes or no to. You know, again, recognition and a voice so that Indigenous people can have an advisory committee so that we can be listened to. Do you think that this is actually like a wet dream for the Liberals if they allowed themselves to embrace this? Do you think this could create a smaller government? Do you reckon this could remove a fair bit of bureaucracy between what's happening in the streets and in the communities and, you know, what gets to the politicians and the legislators and the lawmakers. Yeah, this would be hugely efficient, yeah. you know, and it would actually stop waste. It would save taxpayer dollars. Uh, we're not creating a whole new layer of bureaucracy here. We're creating a means to hold the bureaucracy to account, yeah. to call out waste. I mean, Indigenous people, and, and I want people to really think about this, you know, as I mentioned before, we, we love our children like anyone else. You know, mm. we, we take responsibility and it's the reason why we're calling for this change. So therefore, we don't want to see money wasted in Indigenous affairs. We don't want to see taxpayer dollars not reaching the ground, not reaching the people that need the services, you know, to improve our lives and to heal from all of the traumas that we carry from so many bad policies and such a dark history of mistreatment of our people yeah. the massacres the stolen generations in living memory again yeah yeah indentured know? yeah so indentured we, we we would be calling out waste and we would be promoting programs and policies that work well because we want change you know we want change obviously you can't speak on behalf of everyone but i've seen a lot of distasteful content on news sites and social media hmm. like what's the general like mental health wise at the moment i feel like it would this is very damaging I'm looking forward to this being done yeah. because it really, you know, the 
the vitriol, you know, has been really harmful. And the dishonesty as mm. well from some, you know, from the no campaign telling people that they're going to try to scare people, mm. you know, which brings out fears that then brings out this reaction towards some of us, uh, towards any Indigenous person, actually, it's been mm. that bad. Um, you know, and I don't blame people that have been caused to be fearful. Mm. Um, My parents, because, I did the phone call the other day yeah. and they've definitely been reading all the news sites and it's hard yeah. to explain mm. that it is all just scare campaigns. Yeah, and I don't blame them because, you see, this is a great challenge that we have in this campaign is that there are very few Australians actually that actually have a an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander friend. Mm. You know, as I mentioned, we're only around 3% of the population. We're pretty much unknown. Mm. And so, you know, this fear, I can understand that people have been a cause to fear something by the dishonest no campaign. But I, I really want people to understand and also help people like, you know, mothers and fathers and uncles and friends that might be um, believing what they're hearing, it's that there is nothing to lose. It's an advisory committee. Yeah. You know, so when you hear about losing your backyard or Indigenous people setting interest rates or, or the, putting extra the billion, rent on the people. billionaire Aboriginal elites, that's been a new one I've discovered. Yeah, um, I mean, it's just, it's it's rubbish. You know, it's an advisory committee. Don't be taken for a mug. Yeah. You know, they are trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Yeah. It's an advisory committee. It just, it is all about seeing solutions from the ground, reaching the decision makers. Yeah. And if the decision makers say no, to what the voice advises they can do that mm. they can ignore that advice but the voice itself will then make sure that australians understand hey we did the hard work we come up with these brilliant solutions yeah. they ignored it you know and maybe months or years down the track when it things have gotten worse because they ignored that advo- advice yeah. then the voice will be saying to the australian people you know your representatives yeah. have failed us and we want you to think about that at the ballot box And that concludes part one of the Batuta Advocates interview with MUA officer and Indigenous leader Thomas Mayo. Make sure you tune back in next week where we discuss his upbringing, his work in the Maritime Union and the conspiracies currently being peddled about him and his family in the lead up to the Indigenous Voice referendum. 